Well, good afternoon, everyone. We will uh, go ahead and get started. Uh, thank you all for coming on this uh, dreary Tuesday afternoon. Uh, my name is Michael Kugelman. I'm the Deputy Director for the Asia Program here at the Wilson Center, and I'm also the Senior Associate for, uh, for South Asia. And before I forget, I just wanted to thank our institutional partner, our co-sponsor for this event, which is the Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program. So thank you very much to our, uh, to our colleagues there. So you know, the title of this event is Before the Indo-Pacific, and I think we, we all would agree that the term Indo-Pacific seems to be on the, the tips of many tongues these days. Uh, here in Washington and, and elsewhere, it's become a, uh, a fairly common geographic framing point. Um, it's, of course, the name of the Trump administration's main Asia strategy. Uh, not too long ago, the um, U.S. Pacific Command changed its name to incorporate the term. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's very useful to have some historical context um, analyzed through a different geographic frame, that being the Indian Ocean uh, region. And uh, you know, understanding the geopolitics of the Indo Indian, pardon me, Indian Ocean region during the Cold War can perhaps help us understand the Indo-Pacific today, uh, or at least that is one of the very interesting arguments uh, offered by our speaker uh, today, Dr. Bernice Gil-Rashar. Uh, we're delighted to have her with us. She's been here uh, at the Wilson Center as a fellow since September. It's really been great to have her here. You should have a, a bio in front of you, so I won't go into the details about her, but she is a specialist of South Asia and the Indian Ocean, and she is a, um, or she holds a lectureship, lectureship in contemporary international history at King's College in London. She's done some really brilliant work, in fact, work that has won some awards, uh, looking at a number of issues uh, which are outlined in her, in her biography. And here at the Wilson Center, her project looks at the, uh, the geopolitics of the Indian Ocean since 1945, and that's what she's going to be uh, discussing today. So we'll hear uh, some, some comments or presentation from uh, Bernice, and then we'll, we'll go to a questions and discussion. So the floor is yours. Thank you, Michael. Um, before I start, um, I want to say um, that it's, it's a pleasure for me to speak here at the, at the center to all of you, particularly because I'm right now in the last two weeks of my fellowship, which has gone by very fast, and it's been an absolute pleasure, too fast. Um, and so, you know, at least I have that pleasure of having that sort of moment to market with this talk. Um, so thank you to all of you for hosting me here, um, particularly to the uh, Asia program, to Michael, to Abe, and to, uh, to Rob. Now, as Michael mentioned, um, 10 years ago, um, the term Indo-Pacific existed, but few would have used it as the first uh, term that would come to mind to describe um, this huge region uh, that extends from broadly from the southern shores of, of Western Asia to, uh, to the Pacific broadly conceived. Today, on the other hand, it's everywhere. And if we just um, think about, um, you know, what was I was just reading in the news um, yesterday, uh, the new statement by the French ambassador to India saying that uh, Emmanuel Macron has just uh, tasked him to develop uh, and consolidate an Indo-Pacific region based on shared values and principles. Um, and make it the plank for new cooperation uh, for France and Asia. And this is a vision that is shared between India and, um, and France. So this is something that really transcends, um, although it includes um, the, Trump's, uh, the Trump administration's policy towards Asia. 
and I think here what's interesting, at least from my perspective, is that uh, I see two particularly strong underlying dimensions to this idea of the Indo-Pacific. The first one is the notion that Asia's geopolitics cannot be delinked from broader processes that connect this Asian continent with its wider shores, and so that explode notions of geographical boundedness, which we sometimes we tend to think and order the world. So in terms of the Indo-Pacific, uh, thinking in terms of the Indo-Pacific means thinking about the connections, uh, the tensions as well between uh, Asia and East Africa, um, between different parts of Asia and indeed with the Middle East, and with the ocean itself. Because that's the second aspect of the Indo-Pacific, is that it's something that centers, actually, the ocean far more than was the case, say, with an ocean like Asia-Pacific, which until recently seemed to held more sway. Um, now, this is a notion that as a result can seem new, and yet I would argue that it's actually only the latest in a series of geographic notions that have been constructed to frame and therefore act towards these parts of the world. From a US perspective, it certainly marks the expansion of geographical thinking and, and geopolitical thinking from the Pacific West towards, uh, towards uh, the further shores of, of Asia and indeed connecting the Pacific to what happens in the Indian Ocean. But in a way, actually, for, I would argue, uh, a greater proportion of the countries that I invested in this idea of the Indo-Pacific, um, it's not so much the Pacific that is the prime uh, locus of thinking, it's actually the Indian Ocean that is at the center, implicitly or explicitly. Indeed, the Indo-Pacific as it's emerging today is a product of the prolonged geopolitical change that we have seen occurring in the Indian Ocean during the late 20th century. And this is what I'll be talking about today in the next um, 40 minutes or so. In other words, I'm gonna provide a preliminary and still relatively sketchy um, map of the geopolitical reconfiguration of the Indian Ocean and of its politicization, because this is what was at stake. And in doing so, I hope to make the, the archaeology or the genealogy, if you will, of the Indo-Pacific. So, the term Indo-Pacific has only gained currency recently, but um, terminology, and that's no surprise, is often extremely deceptive, and this is no exception. The imagination underpinning the Indo-Pacific, if not the word itself, is actually much, much older. In fact, you would argue that if you really think about the Indian Ocean, what you have is perhaps the area of the world that has been, in historical terms, been integrated the longest, in the most wide-ranging way, and in the most diverse possible ways. What do I mean by that? Well, there are many, many ways of doing it. In fact, the study of the Indian Ocean itself has become a field in its own right in the humanities and social sciences recently. But if you look at this map, this gives you a sense of how much of a nexus for the interaction, the exchange, and the mixing of people, goods, ideas, cultures, religions, languages, the Indian Ocean has been through much of its history. The earliest example or evidence we have, rather, of long-distance trade dates back to the third millennium BC or so, and it's between Sumer, in what's now southern Iraq, 
and Harappa, the Harappan civilization centered on nowadays Pakistan and northwestern India. Um, trade, and often through boats that would initially go uh, along the coast, is also something that has defined the great migration of people, of which the most impressive is probably the fact that you could actually chart a triangle really resembling today's uh, Indo-Pacific by looking at the distribution of Austronesian languages, which probably uh, took, well, emerged in Southeast Asia, around Taiwan, and have now reached as far as the Eastern Pacific, Hawaii, French Polynesia, uh, Rapa Nui, and as far west, in fact, as Madagascar. This was actually linguistically the, the linguistic family that was the widest, uh, the most widely spread until um, the spread of European languages uh, in the modern era. This um, aspect of the connection and the long distance uh, travels of people, languages, uh, and goods um, is something that is a running theme of the Indian Ocean for all of its history. One example I particularly like, because it, it beggars belief and it's absolutely wonderful to look at, is uh, the story of um, fishermen in Indonesia lending or finding, stumbling upon a sh the shipwreck of an Arabic boat dating back to the 9th century that was transporting goods from Tang China to the Abbasid Empire in Baghdad. In other words, the two biggest, most richest empires of the 9th century were connected across thousands and thousands of miles through Indian Ocean trade routes. And this is something that in some way has even more significance, or at least just as much, and yet isn't as well known as the Silk Routes, which were mainly land-based. It doesn't stop there. I'm just going to give you very quick examples, some of which will already be familiar to you. Anyone who's been to Angkor Wat in, uh, in Cambodia will recognize the influence of Indian classical culture through Sanskrit, Buddhism, um, Hinduism, and their artistic expressions. This is something that has led scholars to talk of a greater India expanding throughout much of Southeast Asia, as it's called today. We also have an increasingly, an inc an equally potent uh, cultural and religious influence in the shape of Islam often, um, often spread through trade and religious scholars across vast distances, again, through the medium of um, these ocean-plying boats called Doze. We also have stories, uh, bittersweet stories of slavery across the Indian Ocean, which in some cases enabled uh, slaves of African background like Malik Ambar to become some of the greatest rulers in early modern India. We have entire cultures, syncretic cultures, being born out of this exchange, like the culture of the Swahili coast that extends from southern Somalia to, uh, to the gates of Mozambique. We have the great vo voyages of the Chinese Muslim Admiral Zheng He in the 15th century, which led to, again, to incredible exchange of goods and to the first giraffe probably ever uh, landing in China at that time. And finally, we see these exchanges in ways we don't even notice. For example, when we don't question the fact that we have baobab trees spread across much of southeastern and southern Asia. Baobab, tre baobab trees are actually native to, um, to Africa, and they spread 
and became part of local cultures, local uh, imaginaries through these Indian Ocean networks at different times in history. So what we have, in other words, with the growing talk of the Indo-Pacific is not something that's exactly new, uh, or at least we should question what's, what's really new about it, because we really have an instant of a centrality recovered. Um, the key difference, and this is what's new, is that with Indo-Pacific, what we have is an explicitly geopolitical notion, which wasn't the case for much of the history of the Indian Ocean. There is one moment where that Indian Ocean had a was a geopolitical arena of competition and conflict in particular, and that's from the mid-16th uh, century to the late 18th century when you had not only European empires but also pow indigenous powers like the Mughals or the Ottomans in the Eastern Mediterranean with a control of Arabia vying for influence and power. But this period is actually, prior to the modern era, probably the only time we really have the Indian Ocean as a geopolitical fulcrum really emerging in a big way. And so we have to wait until the 20th century um, to, see, uh, to see the Indian Ocean, uh, later to become the Indo-Pacific, become a real area of um, competing visions, geopolitical visions. In between, the reason that the early modern period of competition ended is because it crystallized into uh, a form of political and military dominance by the British Empire to the extent that in the early period of the 20th century, the Indian Ocean was often called a British lake, which denoted the fact that although you had other empires like France uh, in the southwestern Indian Ocean, like the Dutch in what's now Indonesia, and you also had still indigenous powers going strong like the Omanis, in practice you had a sort of Pax Britannica in the Indian Ocean. Um, and that was a Pax Britannica not just in the Indian Ocean, but that was enabled and that hinged on control of the Indian Ocean. It hinged in particular on the control of the choke points, which we uh, are aware of today as the crucial passages uh, for the world's trade, like the Bab el-Mandeb at the entrance of the Red Sea or the Straits of Malacca, uh, which has made Singapore what it is. At the time, these were not called choke points, by the way, they were called keys, which I think is a different and perhaps more productive way of thinking about these places. However, when we think about the British lake, we perhaps should add that this was actually a British Indian lake, because what enabled you know, the constitution of the Indian Ocean as this um, single or coherent political space was the fact that the British held control over India. And it wasn't just that India was, you know, the, you know, the, the pearl in the crown of the British Empire. It wasn't just that it was the most important colony of all for its resources and it rich, its riches. It's because India, with its manpower, in particular with the Indian Army, enabled the projection of British power throughout the Indian Ocean and beyond. And this is what gives rise to this notion in the British imaginary that is still there today of East of Suez. East of Suez, what you have is an empire that has two heads in some ways. The Indian capital, which ends up being Delhi, and London. And sometimes they're at odds, right? They might both be manned by... by um, by Britishers, as the, the Indians call them, um, but in practice they have different interests. 
And just to underscore that point, actually, you have some scholars that go so far as to say that India was an informal empire around the Indian Ocean. Um, and it controlled it not just uh, with its army, which I mentioned, but also through administrative oversight, as well as through its control over the economics of empires, such as the pearling industry in the Gulf, which used to be the prime industry until oil replaced it. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that this British lake was ever perfect or solid, completely solid. Things never are. But what we have in the first part of the 20th century, in other words, is an Indian Ocean that's really standing out, in a way, from other maritime expanses because of the clear dominance of Great Britain along its rim. So in other words, what you have is a geopolitically significant region, perhaps a ge geopolitically crucial region, but it's not an arena of geopolitics per se. And it's only with the second half of the 20th century that you will see a series of political, strategic, and economic changes that will change this. The first sign of this, the first shock, comes with World War I, uh, World War II, uh, when in late 1941, the Japanese sweep through much of Southeast Asia, both peninsular and archipelagic, and really topple uh, European empires there. It's difficult actually to overestimate the impact of these defeats, both on the minds of the local people, it gives a fillip to anti-colonial movements which will not abate after the war, but also on the British mind. In fact, you know, if it's interesting to see in, in the context of Brexit, if you look just how much the memory of that defeat still holds true. Whatever the UK is doing right now vis-a-vis -vis the EU is seen by some, generally on the Brexiteer side, as akin to the fall of Singapore. Any quid pro quo, any compromise is seen as in the terms of that uh, humiliation, which you can see here. Now, I don't know how, how much that rings familiar to an American uh, perspective, because certainly we talk of the war, the, the Pacific War, for the, uh, the, the Japanese uh, leg of the Second World War from an American perspective. Um, suddenly, we s the Indian Ocean, even from a British perspective, is not often uh, the first thing that comes to mind with regards to World War II in Asia and Africa. Primarily because it's a story that has been told mainly from a land-based perspective. And yet, increasingly, uh, research is showing that actually control over the Indian Ocean, ensuring that the Allies wouldn't lose control over the Indian Ocean as a key logistical uh, plank, is something that really prevented the Japanese from gaining a decisive advantage and eventually contributed to their defeat. Another interesting aspect of the war is that it's really around that time that you start seeing the the geographical jumble of regions that structure our thinking are starting to shift. Uh, it's around that time that the notion of Southeast Asia starts to arise, will then be consolidated by World War, uh, by the Cold War. And it's also around that time that you start seeing the, co the new consciousness of the Indian Ocean per se arising, even if it's not very, uh, very public yet. And one reason it's not public yet is that the war does end in the, in the end with the defeat of the Japanese and enables um, the British 
uh, but also the French and the Dutch, to try to reconquer their, most of their possessions, their colonial possessions east of Suez. So what you'll have uh, as a result of the war is not so much a watershed in the geopolitics of the Indian Ocean, but rather a moment of destabilization which will have gradual and wave-like consequences which will only become clear years later. One of these consequences is that you do have, despite, uh, uh, despite what some uh, British, French, or Dutch um, statesmen might have liked, the independence of several key colonies around the region. South Asia, India, Pakistan, but also Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, and Burma all become independent within a few months in 47-48. A year later, you have the Dutch East Indies, and uh, as for uh, French Indochina, in practice, it's embroiled in a, in a, in a war from 45 onwards. Um, the Cold War context both accelerates and at the same time enable uh, that the, the reconfiguration of these European empires and at the same time constrains them. Um, for Britain, it means that they do not want to abandon empire. Uh, and if you look at uh, the persistence with which the British fought to regain control of Malaya, now Malaysia, you get a sense of the fact that the independence of India didn't mean the end of the British imperial desire. Uh, instead, it shifts its center. So instead of an Indian center of empire east of Suez, you see a shift particularly towards East Asia, uh, towards East Africa. That happens in a wider context where Britain decides uh, with more or less success um, initially to uh, reconfigure its arrangements, notably to find new networks of bases and uh, administrative control. For example, it wrests control uh, of the Persian Gulf from Delhi. Uh, it goes under London. It also forges new agreements for new bases and it continues some of them. So one of them in particular is um, the successful um, agreement to continue controlling a major, probably the major naval port uh, in the Indian Ocean, which is called Trincomalee uh, in northeastern Ceylon. There is nevertheless a new fragility and instability to this British uh, and French imperial presence in the Indian Ocean. First, because now the Indian Ocean has more independent governments uh, emerging, and they also have to deal with, um, with anti-colonial nationalist sentiments that are helped uh, by these new, colonial these new independent governments. So India, for example, is extremely active in promoting the independence of uh, the East African states, for example. And that the fact that the British empire can now not sustain uh, itself, uh, by itself rather, becomes clear in 1956, uh, just around the time of the Suez crisis, when a new government comes into power in Ceylon, far more left-leaning, under uh, Solomon Bandaranaike, whom you can see on this, on this picture. And uh, immediately, Bandaranaike ushers a turn towards the non-aligned movement, Afro-Asian, anti-colonial um, politics, which means that Trincomalee is wrested from British, uh, and indeed at the time American control. And so that will force the British to really reconsider their entire strength position in the Indian Ocean and indeed really endanger it. In the long term, the consequence of this gradual pr or protracted um, uh, brittleness 
is um, that in 67, also for domestic reasons, the British government decides finally to retreat east of Suez, which is seen as a major, and again, another humiliating moment in the demise of what was once the preeminent empire in the world. There's a huge debate as to why that decision wa was taken. It's also clear that it was only ever partial. Brit the British still have some presence in the Indian Ocean. But what's certain is that by the mid-60s, you really have an Indian Ocean that has lost its status as a consolidated geopolitical space under one, uh, one organizing power, so to speak. And so what follows is um, this weakening and protracted demise of British dominance is a crucial 20-year period from the mid-60s to the mid or late 80s, I would argue. And this is a moment where the Indian Ocean becomes heavily contested, not just by the superpowers, but also from other quarters. And in some ways, you see, in some ways, links between that period and what's happening today. Indeed, it's very common, actually, um, if you look, for example, at Robert Kaplan's very uh, um, landmark book on the Indian Ocean in 2008, I think, to think of the Indian Ocean today as a fulcrum of great power rivalries between India and China, between China and the US, um, and this has merged into this idea of the Indo-Pacific. The assumption sometimes underneath all this is to think that this meant that the Indian Ocean geopolitically didn't matter after the demise of the British Lake. And yet, if you just have a look, browse through newspapers of the mid-Cold War, what you'll see is that the Indian Ocean is regularly in the news as an arena of geopolitical strife, of danger, of risk, of instability. And the context of this, for this, is um, the intersection between the spread of the Cold War to the Indian Ocean and uh, the tide of decolonization as a long-term and messy process. The mid-60s, again, is quite an important period from that perspective because this is a period where you see both the Soviets and the American governments um, start really thinking about what their position in the Indian Ocean should be. So the Soviet Union starts uh, launching uh, an Indian Ocean Naval Task Force uh, in the late 60s. A few years earlier, the US has started um, courting, so to speak, the UK government to gain access to some of its remaining power bases around the Indian Ocean. And in the end, an agreement is made between the British and the American government to uh, detach a group of islands, the main one of which is Diego Garcia, uh, from Mauritius, which is about to gain its independence, in order to, to put it at the disposal of American uh, geopolitical aims. Uh, in this is something that starts really sotto voce in a quite a low-key manner, partly because neither the Soviet Union nor the US are really certain of what's at play in the Indian Ocean. They know, however, that something needs to be done about it because of this uncertainty around it. By the early 70s, however, both the Soviet Union and the US are clearly taking steps to increase their presence in the Indian Ocean by building up Diego Garcia in the case of the US, by building up their presence in the Horn of Africa for the Soviet Union, just to give you a couple of more famous examples. 
And this is due to the fact that the Indian Ocean in itself is becoming increasingly politicized, uh, in particular in terms of its, uh, the, the uh, aspect of the projection of naval power. Um, you have three incidents around 71, 73 that caused this in particular. The first one is the independence of Bangladesh in late 1971. Uh, this is actually largely a land-based conflict, but some of the key um, moments of it uh, in the confrontation eventually between India and Pakistan are when the United States um, sends a warship in sight of Kolkata uh, in defense or as a show of support for its Pakistani ally, uh, and when, on the other hand, the Soviet Union and, the, uh, and India reinforce their presence and the Soviet Union starts thinking about accessing um, Indian ports and helping India modernize its navy. A couple of years later, at a more on a more global level, you have the Kippur War, which leads to the closure of the Suez Canal. Now that really underscores the fact that now the U.S. and the Soviet Union really needs to think about how they're going to access the Indian Ocean at a time when, almost in simultaneously, and of course it's connected. OPEC, the Association of Oil Producers, decides to put an embargo, on an oil embargo. And so this underscores both the fact that the oil that fuels the world is coming out of the Indian Ocean, obviously via the Persian Gulf, but also that these, ch these choke points, and now they're really becoming famous, are really in danger and can be closed like that. Um, in both cases, uh, even when you look at the buildup of Diego Garcia, what's striking is that this is taking place. You see a sort of acceleration of U.S. and Soviet presence in the Indian Ocean without actually still really being sure or certain of what the actual importance or what the actual shape of the threats and the direction of the threat is. So for the Soviet Union, it seems that actually the real direction of the threat in the Indian Ocean is not really the US, it's far more communist China, which is really increasing its, its efforts to court Afro-Asian countries that rim the ocean. Um, for the US, uh, there's an hesitation as to whether the Indian Ocean is really a source of instability and whether actually the problem is not so much the Soviet Union itself, or actually what it sees that the instability, the domestic instability, and the, the desire of the countries along uh, its shores to build themselves uh, according to their own wishes and, and, non, and not necessarily open the door to US interests. However, that means that both of them, both superpowers are really increasing their presence and you see Diego Garcia gradually built up uh, in the most famous case, uh, which becomes a close celeb because the inhabitants are actually uh, expelled and forbidden from returning. And that generates major reactions. Um, that particularly target, in the end, uh, American, what's seen as American imperialism, although Soviet imperialism is not uh, absent from the discussion. Sri Lanka is at the forefront of this. So Sri Lanka has become called this in 70, uh, just in the early 70s. It used to be Ceylon beforehand. Um, it had initially uh, promo proposed in the early 60s 
to turn the Indian Ocean into what it calls a zone of peace, a demilitarized zone where naval ships, submarines, etc., wouldn't have access, particularly if they are uh, the ships or the naval uh, installations of superpowers. And revives that idea of the Indian Ocean zone of peace at the summit of the non-aligned movement in the early 70s in Lusaka. And it ends up with the backing of the other Afro-Asian and non-aligned members to the Commonwealth as a proposal and then to the United Nations in 71. Um, now, both the Ceylon proposal and, as you can see, other discussions around the Indian Ocean at, the, at this time, like, as you can see in this poster, from a, from a PRC, People's Republic of China perspective, are really casting the Indian Ocean as a space which should be a post-colonial sea, where imperialism, which is associated with the sea, should become a thing of the past, where gunboat diplomacy, where uh, the use of naval strength, where the projection of power shouldn't be left uh, some in the hands of, of powers uh, that... Um, that do not have the interest of post-colonial in mind and are indeed not indigenous, not indigenous to the Indian Ocean. So there's this idea with the zone of peace of sanctuarizing the Indian Ocean from the Cold War and of turning it into an actual region. So there's a region building logic, in other words, which is promoted by different countries around the region. I think there are three of them in particular. The first one is Sri Lanka, for whom it's an effort to break out, first of all, of its smallness um, and in order to become a key player in international relations, and it does so very successfully. It really punches above its wave diplomatically for much of the 70s and 80s. It's also a way to push back against India. If Sri Lanka is seen as part of the Indian subcontinent or even South Asia, it's sort of tagged along with India, the Indian big brother whose embrace is not exactly comfortable. If it's part of the Indian Ocean, then suddenly Sri Lanka is more free from India and also has more agency. But India, on the other hand, also has an interest in the Indian Ocean, and that's to make it, and you'll hear, I think, many Indian commentators sometimes say it again, is the goal is to make in the Indian Ocean India's ocean, i.e. there's a sense of fulfilling the manifest destiny of the Indian Ocean from an Indian perspective. And this is promoted by, in both cases, by two very strong women who are in power for much of these decades, Siri Mavu Bandaranaike and Indira Gandhi. And then you have Iran, which, as the Shah's hold on power becomes more and more insecure in the late, uh, in the late 60s and 70s, really sees the Indian Ocean as a new linchpin to assert Iran as a regional power of importance, uh, either by itself or with India, and, uh, and therefore would prop up its legitimacy both abroad and domestically. And finally, there's also a scalar logic. So the way that these countries are pushing the Indian Ocean uh, zone of peace concept is by saying that if you achieve peace there at sea, you'll be able to achieve peace more generally in the world. So in other words, build the Indian Ocean um, as, a, as a geographical area that is entirely pacified, and then you'll be able to build up from there towards world peace. This is obviously a, a moment where the Cold War is full of questions around disarmament, salt, etc., the SALT agreements, etc. And so that finds expression in many, many activities of the UN in that period around the Indian Ocean zone of peace. 
that counter project to US and Soviet um, endeavors in the Indian Ocean is however viewed with skepticism from the start and with ambivalence, not just obviously by the two superpowers, but even within the camp of those that are officially supporting it. In fact, it's very clear that there is at no point in time any agreement as to what this Indian Ocean is, what are the limits of the Indian Ocean and what a zone of peace would really mean. Um, for, for Sri Lanka, the point is to leave all militarization out of the Indian Ocean. For India, that's not what it wants. What it wants is to have the path clear, to make sure that the Chinese, the Americans, and maybe not the Soviets, but certainly out of the way. So there are real divisions actually underneath this idea of the Indian Ocean zone of peace proposal, despite the fact that it's constantly promoted officially um, in diplomatic channels uh, and in the press. And these internal divisions uh, only compound the fact that, um, well, the Soviet Union is only paying lip, lip service to it, and this so the US actually proves to be extremely opposed to it. So the uh, American um, chief of staff are constantly opposed to any form of arms limitation in the Indian Ocean or even of stabilization of the region. And this becomes even more of a, of a general position in the US government in the 80s after the invasion by the Soviet Union of Afghanistan and the fall of the Shah of Iran. Because by now, with the Soviet Union being very, very close to the Indian Ocean, the importance of American naval power has been magnified and the Indian Ocean has a new geopolitical importance as the ocean that borders and that in fact defines the arc of crisis from an American geopolitical perspective. Um, so in the end, the Indian Ocean, through these discussions, even though they don't seem to be going anywhere, um, turns out to become more and more strategic as the late Cold War unfolds. Though sometimes it's seen as a proxy, suddenly for the US. And it's in that context that this notion of the Indian Ocean as a geopolitical space, which really wasn't present for much of its history, really starts coming to the fore. Um, it's interesting, by the way, just as a note, that um, here we see an example of, the, of a region sort of emerging into view, not because people actually agree that it's the right frame, but just because the discussion keeps on happening and, and the confusion around the Indian Ocean ends up in the end fostering the idea that it is a space in its own right, even though it remains as difficult to define as ever. So, so far I've really talked about the Cold War, um, but I think if we limit ourselves to this, we really are missing both um, a key aspect or a key reason for the politicization of the Indian Ocean in these decades, and we're also missing a key link with the Indo-Pacific today. And it's the fact that what's happening in the, in the Indian Ocean is both a symptom and a factor in the growing politicization of the, the world's oceans in general in that period. Um, actually, if you look at the, uh, the history of the Wilson Center, you'll see that um, the Wilson Center just in that period in 71, I think, created an oceans program, which I, I'm not sure, I think it lasted about 20 years, so roughly that period. And that's directly linked to the fact that the oceans were really um, left front of center of, uh, of political debates in that period. Um, the Nixon administration declares an oceans policy in that period. And it's also um, a factor that's happening in society as at large. Um, there is a growing consciousness that the oceans 
are a place that is both vital for humanity but also endangered by humanity. Uh, Rachel Carson, who's authored perhaps the most famous uh, book uh, in terms of shaping environmental consciousness in the West, has wrote around the same period a less, uh, a less well-known but equally important book that really pushes the, the oceans on at the forefront of our, uh, of our consciousness of what matters and what should be dealt with. And the reason for this, well, many, many um, could be, um, could be um, mentioned, but I think I would just stress two of them. The first one is that this is a period of extreme demographic growth and also of what scholars term the great acceleration, the moment where the age called the Anthropocene, where mankind has an outsized impact on the world's environment and climate, really becomes apparent and accelerates and perhaps becomes inevitable. That means that the oceans are now particularly a new, become a new frontier for uh, human endeavor, for human needs and human progress. Fishing grounds become more important than ever. Fishing fleets expand, they modernize. Um, fisheries become more exploited than ever. New ones are exploited, particularly in tropical seas, uh, in the Eastern Indian Ocean, which really sees a fishing race around the 70s. Uh, and meanwhile, you have new, more new resources being extracted. Fossil fuels uh, is the age where you start thinking of drilling oil from the sea, not just uh, onshore. Uh, and also minerals. Seabed mining is really a major, uh, major discussion at that point. Sea lanes are just as securitized as ever, as we've seen, or more. And, um, and all this is taking place in an atmosphere of uh, rapid technological change. So it's not just that humanity has more need uh, for, for the ocean's resources, but also it can access them. And in fact, it needs to find technological ways to access them that didn't exist before. So that means that the question of governing and, and demarcating and controlling the world's oceans to extract, from, to extract resources and also to protect them is really coming to the fore in that period. And the key manifestation of this is um, the series of conferences called UNCLOS, the United Nations Conventions for the Law of the Sea, which are an attempt to figure out and establish a coherent and comprehensive international legal order at sea. So in other words, figuring out how to govern not the world, but the sea in order for the world to be at peace and for the world to continue its path without being constrained and without destroying itself. And in all of this, the impact of decolonization far more than the Cold War can be felt. Because if you look at the great fault lines in that negotiations, it's really a marathon negotiations. It takes years, just the third convention takes 10 years, involves thousands and thousands of delegates, not counting experts, diplomats, etc. It's probably one of the, probably the toughest, most general diplomatic endeavor ever attempted. And the great fault lines in it are not east and west, they're really north-south. This is for past reasons, as I mentioned, imperialism, is greatly, in a modern way, is, a ver is very much associated with the sea. It's the sea that enabled European expansion. It's the sea that still means the US can project its power and the Soviet Union to a lesser extent. But also present day concerns. Uh, the issue of expanding fishing fleets and fishing grounds, that's something that concerns um, 
developing countries in the first place, they do not have the fishing fleets of major maritime users, as they call, like the US or Norway. Or, uh, they do not have uh, the boats that enable them to control the shipping industry, which means they don't control freight rates, which often mean that their food security is endangered by high uh, tariffs, or high rates, uh, and it also means that their exports are, um, don't benefit from favorable conditions. So fishing, um, the shipping industry, even the development of ports, which are often still controlled by, by ex-colonial powers or developed countries, really become political issues that are linked to this idea that decolonization at sea somehow is lagging behind. And that uh, somehow the new international legal order at sea needs to be negotiated in a way that will level the playing field. So if you look at the key issues around that time, they are the extension of territorial waters, it's developing countries that really push to expand territorial waters over, over which their sovereignty can be asserted. The principle of freedom of the sea is something that benefits largely developing country, developed countries and countries with big naval forces. Um, it's also the notion that countries can have exclusive economic zone, which is actually an Afro-Asian uh, notion that was really fought against for the longest time by countries like the United States and the UK, and only then uh, once it was too late, uh, accepted reluctantly. And even at the shipping level, you see um, um, Afro-Asian and non-aligned led organizations that the UN con uh, Conference for Trade and Development enact um, codes that would control shipping rates uh, in an attempt, again, to enable uh, developing countries to control uh, the means of trade. So the politicization of the Indian Ocean, in other words, is really um, connected to this. And the Indian Ocean, the fact that the Indian Ocean stays in the news so much, even though in, there is often little agreement as to what could be done there, is because it is probably the sea that is most emblematic of this effort to decolonize the sea, because it is surrounded largely in the majority by countries that are attempting to build themselves out of uh, a past of colonial rule and economic uh, subjugation. The Indian Ocean, in other words, is really a place where there's still the idea that the Afro-Asian movement of the third world can assert itself and push for new types of international order and reaffirm solidarity at a time when that solidarity is actually not a given or in fact really fraying and breaking at the seams. So the, the Indo-Pacific in conclusion is really, I think, the error in, in to a large extent to first this this siltation of the idea that the Indian Ocean is a geopolitical arena where key issues like control of the sea over the sea's resources, um, uh, maritime boundaries, uh, control over sea lanes are being fought over. And uh, that's linked in turn to the transformation of the sea into a resource and sovereignty frontier. Another, uh, another thing that I think Worth is worth paying attention to is that um, the visions of the Indo-Pacific that we have today are actually equally diverse in some ways as the visions of the Indian Ocean back then. So there is one word, but there are many interpretations of it, and they're potentially contradictory if not uh, really at odds and, uh, and excluding um, of one another. So in that sense, it means that it's a double-edged sword, um, and perhaps what is, I think, um, what is going to be key to whether uh, successful cooperation or, or 
can be ta can take place in the Indo-Pacific is whether there can actually be a real, at least for some of the countries are that are invested in it, a real discussion that ends up finding con real connections point, co concrete connections point between these different visions of the Indo-Pacific that enable a real platform for action. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. It was it was really an, an excellent presentation. You you covered uh, a lot of ground chronologically, geographically, topically. Um, really very interesting, and I think the um, the the images were, were very helpful in that regard as well. So I, I know there may be some some questions. I'll just ask you one question. I think it's a simple one. You could even make it a yes or no answer if you wanted to. Um, wanted to go back to to Robert Kaplan. You mm -hmm. mentioned his book briefly before uh, Monsoon, and um, so he had said, uh, I, don't, I don't think in the book Monsoon, in some other article he had written around the same time that the book was published, that um, the Indian Ocean region may comprise a map as iconic to the new century, e.g. the current century, as Europe was to the last one. So, you know, it's a pretty bold statement. Do you think that's, that's true? And of course he's talking about now, we're 20 years into the new century, he's not talking about the Cold War area, he's talking about now and the future. What do you think of that mm. statement today? Can you repeat the, the crucial the word, the Indian Ocean may be just as important? May comprise a map as iconic to the new century as Europe was to the last one. Um, I think, I mean, the, the uh, I mean, the, the, my instinct is to say for whom is, was that European iconic back then, right? And that question is, for whom is the Indian Ocean important still stays true? So um, I think if you look at, at US definitions of the Indo-Pacific, they, they often don't quite englobe all the Indian Ocean. They sometimes leave East Africa out. Whereas for India or France or Australia, clearly the, the, the map that I mentioned was an Australian one. Um, so I was coming from that perspective, really centers the Indian Ocean. Um, on the other, so I don't think the Indian, I don't think you're ever going to have um, a single, a singular perception and conception of the world. Um, however, um, I think in the end, um, if you think about the importance of um, choke points, which is something that all the countries invested in the Indo-Pacific think about. Clearly, I think this uh, a, a vision of the Indo-Pacific that really englobes the whole of the Indian Ocean and perhaps pushes more and more towards it um, is, uh, is going to be really what I think what will win out. In other words, this, this slightly, uh, this um, Indian Ocean redux vision that the US sometimes still has of, of the Indian Ocean will, I think, lose out on the long term. Um, but that will also depend on this f the future of American power. Yeah. Um. Okay, interesting, thank you. So uh, let's, let's go to you. Um, if, if you have a question, I know it's a small room, but please wait until you have a microphone in front of you to pose your question, because we are recording this and we want others to be able to hear. And if you could give, give your name and affiliation as well. So I think you had your hand up right there, sir. Yeah, we'll start with you. Hi, my name is Matt Shaler. I'm with Foreign Agricultural Service. Uh, so in the last period of great power competition, India led the non-aligned movement. Uh, it seems like they may be making a different choice in this next era of great power competition. I'd just be curious to see your insights and thoughts as to, is it really their evolving role in the world or their understanding of what's at stake? What do you think is sort of pushing them into one, to one camp, whereas before they were avowedly sort of in the middle? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think 
India has not weaned itself of the non-aligned movement altogether. Uh, in fact, it was, I think one reason for that is that um, if it does that, then, um, then it also still leaves ground for China to assert leadership. And historically, that's been a big contest between the two of who would have leadership of the non-aligned countries. Um, I think in terms of maritime perspectives, though, it seems to me that India today is far less wedded to this non-aligned stance than in other fields like peacekeeping, where somehow it still has this very non-aligned position. Um, in maritime perspective, if you look just how strongly it is pushing for collaboration with France or Australia or indeed Japan, I think you're seeing sort of a different, uh, I think you're, you're seeing India using non-alignment strategically for different regions and different issues. And in terms of maritime issues, I don't think this is something that's, um, that's particularly strong. And I think this is due to the fact that this is a case, in, there is probably no other field today um, other than South, the regional politics of South Asia where Indi anything that India does in maritime issues can be seen as great power ambitions, right? Uh, so it's very hard to square that with with a non-aligned discourse in practice, keeping in mind that this was always the fear of other non-aligned countries, uh, that India, d India doing anything in the Indian Ocean is furthering its own power interests. Mm. Mm. Other questions? Yes. Uh, <coughs> uh, Matt Burris from the Atlantic Council. Just wondering, you know, obviously, I mean, a big uh, impetus for the U.S. in all of this is really not so much the Indian Ocean or in even India as their fear of, of China with its, you know, necklace of pearls mm. and so on, all the stuff that, that you hear in the press. But I wonder, I mean, can you ever get back to you know, even if it's a, cons a consortium of India, U.S., Australia, France, and others into kind of a consortium pax, um, you know, which tries to make itself dominant instead of and kind of pushing China out to mm. the side. I mean, given that, that you have a lot of the Africans who are very dependent on Chinese investments. Um, we we did a study last year, which you know all the uh, undersea water cables are China Chinese built that go into into the Horn and, and other parts of Africa. Um, so I'm just wondering, and, and U.S. And companies just won't get involved. I mean, mm. this is a. I'm just wondering if you if the region still remains very conflicted and the fact too that you have another era looking of great power competition doesn't that <coughs> you know uh, I suppose fuel some resentment that instead of the non-aligned and the their own vision of a mm. of a peaceful Indian Ocean that we're back to now maybe possibly even greater competition. Mm. So there's a lot in there, so <laughs> I apologize. Yes, um, I think, um, yeah, 
I think that's uh, that's that's um, again something that that I think has uh, has precedence. This sense that um, a lack of understanding and prioritization of the needs of the countries that compose the majority of the Indian Ocean's uh, rim um, is, um, you know, it's a factor of resentment. Um, and um, yeah, it's a, it's a factor of resentment. And I also think, um, in practice, what I'm what I'm hearing when you know I, I have to say my experience of the region is is really uh, more based on South Asia and Southeast Asia, but um, that it's responding to an issue, it's it's creating an issue where um, there is there is perhaps a problem, but it's it's actually far more creating of problems to just have a zero sum mentality towards the Indian Ocean, which seems to be. Um, sometimes the case, even when you hear about uh, the, uh, you know, the quad discourses around, f you know, furthering an Indian Ocean that is rules-based and free and secure, this is a language that is very Pacific on the outset, and yet underlying it, you have the idea that there's somebody to be pushed out, and in, you know, in in local when when in and locally it seems that often the issue is rather well we have needs that need to be met. And a zero-sum game only puts us, of forces us to face up to choices that we wouldn't want to make. What we want is to have alternatives and opportunities. Um, so there is there is a disconnect um, that could grow, um, and there was a disconnect by then as well. Um. Uh, okay, we'll start with the gentleman there, and then we'll come up here to the other side. Hi, my name is Eric Fligoff from the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, my question is about economic integration. So the South Asia, South Asia and the Indian Ocean is certainly one of the least economically integrated regions in the world at the moment. And I was wondering uh, what your thoughts were on the implications of the growing securitization of that region for uh, you know, pan-Indian Ocean trade, of course, one of the greatest problems being that the two largest countries by population in that region do not directly trade <coughs> with each other. So I'm curious about what the what the future is of economic integration. Yeah, um, well, I think you ha what, what I can notice is that you have sort of a sub-regional, the, the most successful, some of the most successful, I should say, um, efforts for greater economic integration are coming at the sub-Indian Ocean level. So in other words, you have perhaps multiple in nexus, nexus of, of economic integration that are trying to emerge. Um, some of them are stillborn, I think, uh, you know, for example, in, in um, the South Asia-centered SARC seems to be going nowhere for reasons to do with uh, the India-Pakistan relationship. On the other hand, there is, um, you know, I think there, are, there is some evidence that there are real efforts to create something with the Indian Ocean Rim Association, um, or in, partic in particular with uh, the Southwestern Indian Ocean. Uh, it would be interesting in that regard to see how um, India's new interest in somehow becoming part of the, that Southwestern Indian Ocean picture could 
first foster more economic integration and also mean that there's a, a certain redirection of Indian efforts because this is not a region where traditionally, um, apart from Mauritius, India has uh, really directed its views. Um, so, um, so that so I think what you're going to see is perhaps more localized efforts because at the broader sort of pan-Indian Ocean level at this stage for the reasons I think you partly out, you know, outline, it's, it's quite a far-off idea. Yeah, I would agree. A mix of uh, you know, bad infrastructure and countries that don't get along is not a good mm. recipe for, uh, for integration. Uh, I think up we're going to come up here next. Uh, Oshal, I'm a retired Department of Labor employee. Uh, what is the role of Australia in the mm -hmm. um, So I think, so, Austra so Australia sees, um, has seen itself as having somehow a stake in the Indian Ocean for a while now. In fact, it officially, it was one of the countries, one of the few Western countries that officially promoted the zone of peace idea. Um, it was ambivalent about it because it also had the matter of the fact it was a Western country very invested in the ANZUS uh, alliance um, to, to, to square with it. Um, and I think that sort of ambivalence is still there. Um, there's a sense of exceptionalism from what I can see in that Australia is both a Pacific power and an Indian Ocean power, which a little bit like France in a way, means that it, it sees itself perhaps as particularly suited to making the link between the, be, uh, being the link that makes the Indo-Pacific happen. Um, on the other hand, the two are not equal. I mean, it's, it's, it's economic trading links are far more, if you look at a map of the world, perhaps I should say vertical or, or longitudinal. They're, yeah, they're going towards Japan and, uh, or China rather than to the western part of the Indian Ocean. And Australia itself domestically is a very lopsided country. Western Australia is isolated from the rest of the country. And, um, and in fact, I think there is perhaps a domestic, back then, perhaps today as well, I'm not so sure, I'm um, not so familiar with it, but there might still again be that domestic dimension going on in that suddenly in the past, pushing the idea that of the Indian Ocean for Australia was a way for them to say, to tell Western Australia that they were not the sort of, um, they were not playing second fiddle, with it, uh, fiddle within the Federation, within the Commonwealth. Um, so that might still, you know, I think the domestic dimension might still be playing a role. Uh, it's in, it's, you know, the, the internal integration of the country does necessitate taking the Indian Ocean into account and developing further links um, with the Western Indian Ocean. If you just think about how often it's said that Perth is the most isolated big city in the world, uh, the only way to change that is actually not just with by reinforcing links within Australia, but also by deepening mm. integration within the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, let's go to the back. Um, hi, my name is Ahmed Atik. I work for USAID. Um, this is basically a follow-up. Um, what is the role of Japan in the Indian Ocean? Mm. Um, well, I think um, one of the, this is another instance, I think, of um, sort of the circular aspect of history. Um, 
of course, there's World War II, in the moment where you know, Japan is at the, the origin of, of um, some of the, the changes I've outlined today in terms of the politicization of the Indian Ocean. But the other aspect of it is uh, not war, it's uh, fishing, uh, fishing and shipping. Um, Japan was very much uh, a maritime empire, an empire of fishing, and that is, you know, that has been a big aspect of its return to the Indian Ocean. Now it's expanding as well. I think the the other the other um, way in which Japan is now newly important is in its role as a partner in the buildup of infrastructure, which you was you were mentioning is one of the key problems uh, for the region. Um, and its partnership with India in this regard is, is I think, particularly important. Uh, and in fact, it's quite, it's quite. I think it's one of the more striking developments in terms of India's political economy is how much Japan has become, at least for crucial strategic regions of the subcontinent, Japan has become the enabler for India's um, infrastructural push. Um, how far that will go and how effective that will be, I don't think is a bit too early to say, but I think that's perhaps, you know, and again in terms of uh, opening, you know, what we were discussing earlier in terms of opening possibilities of enlarging them, I think this is something that Japan can do. No, I agree. I think India-Japan relationship is probably one of the fastest growing bilateral relationships in Asia. And I do, as, as you note, a lot of infrastructure projects envisioned, including a big train line, a new rail line, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, other questions? Okay, let's come back to this side. We'll start here, and then we'll come up to the front. Um, thank you for the wonderful presentation. Um, I really want to focus on your title that says about the legacy. I'm trying to get the legacy out of this historiography from, especially from 60s to perhaps 80s. Um, so if we coined the term Indo in the Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean, um, I'm I was like thinking about Pacific Ocean history while listening to you and how different is it? And clearly the different thing is the United States, how US mm -hmm. is in Pacific Ocean in the 60s and 80s, and India, Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. um, so put this, you know, the legacy of Indian Ocean history with comparison, for example, with the Pacific Ocean history or Atlantic, of, um, Atlantic Ocean history, especially in the 60s and 80s, like what legacy do you think you can draw upon? Well, I think if I can be contrarian, I would say that for, for me, one of the first things that jumps to mind is the non-legacy, or rather the major missed opportunity um, that perhaps I think is, is full of consequences for the issues that we're talking about today in terms of political instability in the region, um, issues of economic integration. And when I say non-legacy, it's the fact that that you know, I started my, my talk by discussing the fact that the Indian Ocean, if you look at the wider span of history, is historically the most integrated long-distance or large-scale, mm. you know, cross-regional entity in the world. Um, and yet, and, and, and the British Lake, by the way, if I didn't make that clear, continued that legacy, right? Um, that was really followed by disintegration. So actually, when we're talking about you know, the lack of integration of the region today, it's actually something that flies in the face of the fact that this wasn't the case until um, until the Cold War. 
um, you have entire regions. Like, you know, when you look at an organization like BIMSTEC, which is trying to link South, A South Asian countries with Southeast Asian countries, you know, you see it in the case of India and Thailand trying to further their cooperation. They have to start from scratch, even though most uh, scholars, most historians of the Bay of Bengal would say that it was very much an integrated economic, um, um, economic and trade region until, um, until the war, until the Second World War. So in a way, I think the, um, the legacy the legacy of, of that period is also a destructive one in the sense that um, you have, it's been a period of disintegration that makes contemporary efforts start from where they shouldn't be starting, i.e. from a very low level, right? So, and, and there is not the, you know, as much as, you know, I started by saying, you know, the efforts of, you know, this resistance to imperialism, the countries around the region bear, bear their share of responsibility because the idea of independence was an idea that, that took on this European concept of the nation states, that you had to have national boundaries. So there could be collaboration, cooperation between statesmen, but somehow countries had to impose their boundaries, had to, to curtail the movement of people, had to introduce bars on the citizenship of movement, and that has had, to an extent, destructive legacies that the region is still to some extent, recovering from. Um, so, in a way, I'm sort of turning your question on the head because I think that's the most, I would say that's probably the more, perhaps one of the most important long legacy, uh, legacies that we need to think of. Hmm. Uh, yes. Thank you. My name is uh, Arifa Khaled. I am a former um, member of the Parliament of Pakistan. Um, my question is that what do you see with this uh, historical background that uh, India and China both are trying to compete in this, this region? So what do you see with this background that um, this conflict would continue or would it be very clearly defined or because both want to have a trade they both want to have trade with the whole world. I would say the they have the shortcuts and the sea routes. So what do you think? In the long run, are they going to join hands or are they going to keep fighting on the for the region or there is going to be a political conflict all the way? How do you see, as you have really, really done a lot of wonderful research about India, and which is really true, so <coughs> how do you see in your view? Yeah. Thank you. Are you asking a historian to make predictions, which <laughs> is always a very, very dangerous endeavor. Um, I think, I think what, I'm, what worries me in terms of, um, if, I, if I can take the question from a different angle in that case, what, what worries me, perhaps, in terms of predictions is their self-fulfilling <coughs> tendency. And, and, you know, I started this talk by talking about terminology, you know, concepts like the Indo-Pacific and what they reveal and what they hide. And I think, you know, when we are immediately, almost as, a, as instinctively talking of India and China in terms of a great game, right, which is the way that it's talked about almost reflexively uh, here, 
we are furthering, we are, I'm not saying this is predetermining uh, the issue, but it's fueling, it's already taking us along the path that fosters the idea of conflict and <coughs> that promotes it, right? Um, instead, so in other words, the, the prism with which we start is often the prism of conflict. By the way, the concept of the great game is, is a historical one that has actually heavily debated, and in fact, from my perspective, quite <coughs> poor. Uh, so it's, it's a problematic concept that ends up fueling conflict more than anything. So if, so if I could go back to how, how, you know, how the relationship is going to go, I think, first of all, we need to be you know, in, in ascribing a relationship as complicated, as complex mm -hmm. as that of India and China, as ambivalent. Um, we need to be very careful with putting labels on it. So even the string of pearl strategy, you know, if you if you start looking at the fact, is it you know, China's presence around the Indian Ocean can be you know can be assessed in a way that doesn't that doesn't presume that any Chinese endeavor, say in Pakistan with Gwadar, although I think with Gwadar is probably quite true, is is necessarily military in nature or has you know because it, it fosters that right. So I think. For me, one of the one of the factors that worries me is the unreflexive use of certain concepts that are quite don't, don't explain that and actually contribute to problems. Are there any other questions before we wrap up? Yes, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Yoko Wairegala, and I am a music composer. And recently, I received a commission to write the music about Brunei, a mm. yeah, small country, uh, but very, very rich in resource. And in order to write the music, I did the uh, research in this area, and specifically uh, one uh, folk tale mm -hmm. I compared to the uh, Brunei, Indonesia, and Malaysia. And it's the same uh, 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 folk tale, but interpretation <coughs> is a little bit different. And the uh, same, uh, same start and same ending, but it's uh, slightly different, and that is the uh, a very interesting for me. And uh, so my question is, what do you see the position of Brunei? Uh, very small in this region, but it's very rich uh, and resource and, um, so and so uh, relationship in these three countries, among these three countries, and also the direction, what do you think in the Brunei's uh, uh, aiming for the, mm. the next? Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I don't feel entirely qualified to talk about Brunei because it's really not a part of the world I, I'm, I'm really an expert on, but I, I think one of, the, one of the, from the perspective of small <coughs> countries, in fact, very small countries like Brunei, one of the things that the focus on the, um, a focus on the ocean does is to actually put the focus on them and to give them more possibilities. So this is something that Sri Lanka, I think, was thinking. What it, you know, if you look at what Sri Lanka did and what is to further anything related to the sea in international politics since the 70s, and they continue to do this because it's in it's in their interest, right? To think of the Indian Ocean means that you are giving, you are suddenly starting to think of small countries, island countries, or islandized countries like Brunei, because it's like an island surrounded by, um, by Indonesia, by, by Malaysia. Uh, it's giving them space that otherwise they wouldn't have. 
And so I think in this case, there is something going on. It's, and you can see that with Mauritius. You can see this with um, Seychelles. You know, f f a focus on the ocean in this case is a way to, to give countries that otherwise do not have much of a voice and, you, and to rethink who's important. So, f so f f from Sri Lanka's perspective, the, the Indian, the, the Indo-Pacific has benefits, even if it comes with problems with, you know, of, you know, as we've seen the, the debacle around Hamba the port of Hambantota in southern Sri Lanka, which somehow seems to have, uh, well, actually, I think that was slightly, could be predicted, although, again, it's easy to say it after the fact. Um, it hasn't served its purpose. So it's, it, it is sort of, there is a level of, you know, being hamstrung by, by power politics, but thinking through, you know, prioritizing the oceans actually give them, give small countries like Brunei a space that they wouldn't have had. But then again, there's a difference that Brunei is one of the richest, if most unequal countries on the planet. So it gives it quite, quite a s different position than Sri Lanka or Mauritius. Well, this has been a great discussion. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. I hope that, that, that you all did as well. Um, terrific presentation and, and comments from, from Bernice, and also a terrific question. So thank you for all, to you all for your, for your great questions. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, maybe if we could give another round of applause for, um, for Bernice. Um, and uh, again, we're sorry to be losing her in a few weeks. It's been great to have you here.